you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. And I'm very grateful that you are, and I'm very grateful that we have a guest today that I know so many people enjoy hearing from and that he's got a lot of new things to offer. It's Dan Mall. Dan, welcome. Lou, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, and the, a lot of the pleasure, as you, you were saying sort of pre-shows, you can kind of take a breath now because your book is like out of your hands. Uh, oh my and- gosh, it's such a sigh of relief. Uh, I've been working on it for such a long time. As you know, um, you know, books are a, a labor of love and, uh, and it's nice to be done. It's nice to know that like other people will be able to read it now soon. Well, and uh, if you're listening and wondering what the hell we're talking about, Dan's book, Design That Scales, Creating a Sustainable Design System Practice, will be out very soon. Like, I believe it might be on pre-order as soon as Monday which yes. is like, uh, what is that, October 2nd or thereabouts. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, we are so happy, Dan. It's, and like, I, 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 you know, like design systems, not exactly something that's brand new, but something that um, is maybe ready for a, a new look. Uh, not yeah. a new look in the sense of we wanted to make it look better, but a new look in terms of looking at it from maybe a sort of a different perspective, one where um, we now have the benefit of a number of years and people working in them, thinking about them, writing about them, having conferences about them, that um, we can take this sort of different view, which you're doing and design that scales. Can you yeah. bottom line the unique lens that you're taking a look at design systems through? Yeah, totally. So as you said, design systems are are old. They're as old as humans are. You know, if you think about cave paintings, that was a form of design systems, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, and, and in the last 10 years also, we've had sort of a revival in how digital work gets done. And design systems are a big part of that, especially at large enterprises that work at scale. And so, you know, even though it's a thing that I think humans are intrinsically familiar with, you know, just from living on the earth, um, the way that we work in digital is is kind of new, you know, and is, is exciting and has a lot of important ramifications for the way that people are doing design work and IA work and engineering work and content work and all the things that make the digital products that we interact with every day work, you know, from all the Google apps that you might use or the Microsoft apps, or you name the big company whose apps you use, likely a design system has either entered their vocabulary or has been existing for a long time. So, you know, what I wanted to take a look at in this book is just kind of debunk a couple of myths about how these things go and also inform people to go, it's uh, it's beneficial, it's it's accessible, it's important, and you can do it. Um, and I think a lot of people learn design systems by doing them poorly and kind of learn from failure, which is a great way to learn. But maybe I can help people learn from success, you know, a little bit more than than learning from failure on their own. So that's really what the book is about. So is that failure rooted in seeing design systems as like like sort of in sets of instructions, something that's almost algorithmic? You set it up and and people follow it and it just works that way. 
Yeah, totally. It's it's because you know those two words, design and systems, are both very broad words. So when you put them together, it, it basically applies to just about anything. You know, design is something that you intend to do, intend to render, and a system is is a thing that is connected. So it's like that doesn't really give us anything uh, to hang our hat on. And in the book, part of what I cover is there are actually seven different kinds of design systems that we can identify, even in digital work. So just talking about the same thing is hard. You know, so I think we, we you know, and, and part of the promises of good design systems is shared vocabulary. And if we can't even define the thing together, how can we have a shared vocabulary about what it is and how we use it and things like that? So, you know, I think it deserves a, a breakdown of going like, here are all the things that qualify as a design system. And which one are we going to talk about or which one are you going to use at your company or on your team? And it could be any one of those things, but aligning on it is is the first step. So how do you get that alignment to happen? Is it, do you need, so you need to be doing that before you say, all right, we're ready to start creating design systems or is it more typical? Like you've already taken maybe some years of steps in that direction with mixed yeah. levels of success. And then you're having to pop your head back out and say, what the hell's going on? Right. But my, my favorite quote about design systems, I wish I could take credit for it. I wish I had my own version, but I credit uh, Lauren Lopret. Um, she said, design systems are culture change disguised as a UI kit. Ooh, that's yeah, great. So juicy, right? It's so good. That and, is and, great. And that that's why they're so difficult because they are culture change. That's why, you know, design systems, if you think about them as a, a project or as a library or as a set of guidelines and tools, yeah, I mean, it takes you a couple of days to make one, a couple of weeks to make one, and then you set the rules and people follow it. But as any any organization can can tell and, and know that you can't just give people rules and expect them to follow it. The culture has to exist for people to be able to do that successfully. And a lot of the cultures don't have the the ways for people to go, I'm going to use this code library or this these design files or this process or this structure or this service. You know, they don't have the culture that supports that. So that's why it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't catch. Um, and so those are the things that I think are really important in terms of design systems is you have to set the culture, you have to set the table for the culture to be able to be receptive to those ideas in the first place. And if you if you do that too soon, then they don't take a lot of the, the design system teams that I work with and have consulted with, most of them who have done it successfully are out on their third or fourth try. And most of it, it's not because the design was too hard, the React code was too difficult to write or anything like that. It was because the organization wasn't ready to adopt it from a cultural standpoint. And so, you know, part of what I cover in the book is how do you, how do you set the table for that? How do you get people to be more open to a different way of collaborating? How do you get the roles set up? How do you pay people well enough? How do you, what roles do you need to have, you know, in order for those things to take? So all of those things contribute to design system success. It's not just as easy. I, I wish it was. It's not as easy as you make the thing and people use the thing. You know, it's a lot more involved than that. Okay, well, okay. So it, does it even go further back? Like, uh, you know, maybe this is taking it a little too kind of early on in the in how people work in a large organization. But to the point of, I happen to be a designer or a writer or some other person that's creating digital content in an enterprise, let's say, does it even occur to me to think that there's a version of this that may have already been thought through or that, that there is some guidance that I can draw on? I mean, do you see that people don't even think that to, to think about it, a potential design system out there in their own organization? Yeah, I think that when people think about it is when they experience pain. You know, it's when they when they realize, 
why am I doing this the fifth time, you know, over and over again, the, the eighth time, the 12th time, didn't I just do this? And a lot of the designers that I talk to and engineers that I talk to, um, they say things like, I've built my whole career off of designing forms and tables. You know, set, you know, I've been a designer seven years. And for the last seven years, I've just designed forms and tables. And so there's a comfort in that. There's also a boredom and a pain in that, especially when it's not systematized. And there's also a fear in replacing that too. You know, so if, we, if somebody came up to somebody and said, hey, you no longer have to design or build forms and tables again, there's equal parts. Hallelujah. That saves me time. And then also, but wait a minute, is my job in jeopardy now? Because that's what I've been paid to do for the last X amount of years. So again, that's all the cultural stuff that goes along with it is we can't just take take jobs away from people and then not replace them with something else. We've just, we just unemployed them. You know, we just laid them off essentially, you know, without them having something else to do. So we, we also, as organizations and teams, we have to figure out, well, what do we replace that stuff with? You know, what? how can we replace it with higher order, higher value activities like thinking through user needs more deeply or caring more about accessibility or, or documenting things more thoroughly or, you know, things that people have wanted to do for a long time that we've never had time for. Well, now we have the time to do it. But again, we have to be culturally set up to be able to use our time that way. You know, our scrum, our scrum teams have to change. Our agile methodologies have to change. The 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 way that we measure our work when whether or not it's successful, those things have to change. And if we're not prepared to change those things with it, design systems usually have a, a tough time catching. I I find that a lot of people who um, you would well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, in situations like that, like this, where suddenly there's a design system, or maybe we're starting to use very powerful AI tools, or whatever it might be, that can be perceived as a threat to people in certain roles, it, you know, it's it's they the the problem is often not that they're going to lose a certain amount of work or a certain kind of work that they've been doing for a, a long time. I think a lot of them get that it's it's okay to move on. What I think. It's often the hardest part for them psychologically is just the the increase in uncertainty. So, do you find in those sort of early situations where you're you know you're standing up a, a design system, or at least you're trying to stand up a successful one where there wasn't, that you have to sort of give those people some new kind of certainty or maintain some kind of certainty? that didn't come from designing forms over and over again. Like, do you have to give them something else? 100%. I, I, that's why whenever I teach design systems, I teach two things. One is the nuts and bolts of it. You know, how to, and I teach that through a, a thing called piloting. There's a whole big chapter in the book about piloting and how you might use a design, use a product on your roadmap as a pilot to grow your design system and continuing doing that. So, you know, that, that I think is probably obvious to people. In order to work on a design system, you got to know how to make a design system. But then the other part that I, I can't not teach is the process and the workflow stuff, mm -hmm. because that's the other part, that's the other side of the coin. And part of that comes that all, all the stuff that you're talking about is the, the certainty that people felt before. What we have to get them to realize is the certainty wasn't in designing forms, designing tables or headers or things like that, even though that's the illusion. The illusion mm -hmm. was like that piece was certain and now that's going away. So a lot of what I talk about is what keeps people motivated. And, and there's three things. It's autonomy, purpose, and mastery. And so if we can continue to deliver those three things to people, then whether the, the mastery comes in designing forms or designing something new, a new interaction or designing a new service or a new business unit, 
you know, that same skill of designing that thing can be applied to something else. And the certainty can come from the continuity of that. I'm still using my same design skills. I'm just applying it somewhere else. You're still a designer, damn it. Exactly. That's right. And I think people don't realize that, at least initially, oh, I'm not designing forms anymore. Am I a designer? Am I even a designer anymore? And I think there's an identity piece of that that we have to address to say, yeah, you're still a designer. You're still an engineer. You're still an information architect. You're still a content person. We're just applying. We're just pointing it in a different direction now. So let's talk a little bit about the kinds of organizations that um, are, are more or are more likely to take your advice. Like what, what kind of cultural signs or markers do you look for when let's say you're working with a client that makes you feel like, oh, these folks are, are going to be more likely to succeed than some others? Um, one, the, the biggest thing, and I think this is, this works at a macro and a micro scale. Um, so this is true when I'm teaching a new designer, who's maybe a career switcher or somebody who is a student, it's the same thing that I see in big organizations when I'm working with a team, it's open-mindedness, you know, open-mindedness and curiosity. You know, those are things that, that to me are, are welcome signs for change. And, and the flip side is true too. Uh, organizations or people who are like, I already know how to do this. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm closed my, I don't know. I don't need a new way to do this. I'm like, well, that's going to, it's going to be tough to adopt a design system if you've already got it set. Cause there's always going to be some amount of change that you have to adopt in order to do that. So a lot of the teams, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of teams that I work with that have successful design system practices are on their third or fourth try. And a lot of the open-mindedness unfortunately comes from, well, we thought we knew what we were doing the first two times and clearly we didn't. So I don't know, we're open to whatever now, you know, we're just, we feel pain and we thought that we could solve it before. And usually that pain comes in the, you know, in the language of business, it usually comes in the form of money. We're losing a ton of money. We're being inefficient. You know, we we're just not communicating the way we are competing. Our competitors are eating our lunch, you know, so we need something different, you know, and that's, that's what a design system is. It's something different. And in order to adopt something different, You've got to be, you have to have the mindset to go, okay, I'm receptive to something new now. So, so you're not seeing necessarily organizations that, um, like haven't been through pain, uh, succeed like they, rather than saying, well, we, we learn that we're learning the hard way. I wonder if you see organizations that say, well, you, you know, we're, we're just more care. We, we just want to be cautious about risk. We know things could go wrong. And we want to nip that in the bud. Do you see that happening much? Yeah. I mean, I, I can recall a story of an organization that I work with that they didn't feel much pain. You know, they were like, I think we're doing okay. And that was one of the organizations that a design system took a long time to take there because I think they weren't, they didn't have the motivation to do something different. Mm. Sometimes that comes from pain. I think that's one of the strongest signals. Other times it just comes from the desire to innovate, you know, the desire to do something differently or better or something like that. And at that organization, it just wasn't strong enough. You know, they saw themselves, they were the number one competitor in their own space and in their own industry. And uh, I, I, if I hearken back to, I think it was a campaign from the eighties for Hertz Rent-A-Car when, the, when they were number two behind, I forget who they were. Their slogan was number two tries harder. You know, yeah, it, it actually, I think it was, it was like, Avis who was competing Avis, against that's right, Hertz. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, I, it was, it's such a great slogan. You know. Yeah. Number. You know, we try harder we try because harder. we're number two. We have something to prove. And I think, uh, unfortunately, organizations that are in that number one spot, they can rest in their laurels a little bit more because they don't. You know, they they are the ones to be unseated, and so they don't necessarily have to do anything to change unless their competitors sort of force that. 
Yeah, and yet we see that it again and again. You know, I'm just holding my phone up here and remembering the Motorola I once had. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it. it I have. It, it's interesting. This is such a great topic, and I, I. I've done a couple hundred podcasts, and I know that my brain is swimming when I. I, I I pause and I'm not quite sure how to ask the, the next question because I'm still thinking about what you said last time. Um, so, you know what? I'm going to take the, um, I, I, I'm, because I'm the host, I can decide we're going to take a quick break. We're going to do that. But after the break, I want to kind of get more into culture and governance in particular because I feel like, you know, that's something that's so critical here about how decisions get made, uh, who even decides to have a design system or rethink it and so forth. We're going to get into that after the break, and I'm going to let some more of these ideas settle in during the break. Everyone, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. Uh, we'll be right back with Dan Mall. What are you doing on November 29th? I'm asking because I know what I'll be doing, and I hope you'll be part of it. Our fourth conference of the year is Design in Product. It'll be the second edition. I'm programming it with Christian Crumlish, and we are really excited. We just launched the program. It's got two keynoters, John Cutler and Ellen Chisa. Can't really do better than that if you're interested in the intersection of design and product. And we've got a great program. Asia Ho, Ian McMaster, Ihan Chang, Lauren Catan, Julie Kim, Chloe Sharp, Alfred Kahn, and Sean Chen are fleshing out that program. And we are going to delve into the topics that are bedeviling designers who are trying to work in product settings or with product people. The themes that we're exploring are alignment and partnering, setting and defending priorities, influencing and politicking. If you can do those, designers, you can succeed in a product and organization or working with product people. You want to be there. It's a virtual conference on November 29th. See you then. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. And uh, Dan Mall and I are talking about his um, new book, Design That Scales. And it's coming out in uh, October, November, 2023. I guess you might be listening to this after then. Hope you'll pick up a copy. Uh, and just before the break, um, my brain was swimming with all the things that Dan was saying and swimming toward governance. Um, you know, we're talking about bringing in uh, new ways of looking at design systems. We're also talking about you not only deciding to do that, but how to pay for it, who pays for it, who does it, how does it get organized? Uh, that's a lot of cultural issues, a lot of political issues. That's kind of, in a way, a lot of what you're addressing in the book that hasn't been addressed before when people talk about design systems. Yeah, it's a it's a timely concept too. I think I've been doing design systems since like 2012, 2013, you know, around there. Um, which is kind of early-ish days, you know, for as this was emerging in our industry uh, as, as a digital tool. And I remember a lot of the clients that I'd worked with and teams that I'd worked with, they were asking for help building or designing a design system. Uh, if you fast forward to now, I almost never get an inquiry from a client or a customer saying like, help us build a design system. Almost everyone has one. Almost all of the inquiries now are like, 
how should we govern this? Like, what should our contribution guidelines look like? So a lot of the the, the industry seems like people have, you know, starting to take on, on design systems or they built their own, but there's still some problems with it in that like people don't know what to do with it as a product, you know? So how do, how does it govern? Who are the roles that, you know, involved in it? Um, who does what and when do they do it? So, you know, eager to, to get into that topic for sure. Okay. So, um, and, and well, also we have to roll in another aspect, which I think is, it's amazing we haven't used this word yet because I think it, it pretty much animates a lot of your thinking, which is sustainability. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I know I know. when we had early, I think, Lou, when you and I talked about the book very early on, we talked a lot about the design systems being practices, you know, and that's in the subtitle of the book. It's creating a sustainable design system practice. And, you know, those words go together well because it's not enough to just create a design system. It's not enough to just create a design system practice. It, the Really, the full fruition of all this is it's got to be sustainable because there's such a big effort to create a design system and get it ingrained into your organization. If it lasts you a year, it wasn't worth the effort. Right. Good design. You know, if you look at material design, I think they're going on year 10 or 12 or something like that. Wow. And that's a great example of a sustaining, a sustainable practice. That doesn't mean they don't have problems or challenges just like everybody else does, but it's been there for a while and it powers a lot of the, the work that Google does. So, you know, I think design systems need to be created in order to last. Otherwise, if they don't last, they're just a pro they're just a short-lived project and like you might not want to spend all the effort to do it. So so what does governance look like in, in with the idea that it's going to be sustainable? I mean, you need government governance to be sustainable. Where does it typically begin? Uh, are you seeing it emanate out of a, a design organization or a developer organization or engineering or somewhere else? What is there a pattern? So uh, Rosenfeld Media cross sell unlocked here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna cite uh, Lisa Welchman's book, which is great, Managing Chaos: Digital Governance by Design. I learned a ton about governance from that book. So you know, big big hat tip there. Um, governance is basically you know, clarifying roles and responsibilities for collaborative teams. You know, that's the way that Lisa kind of talks about uh, about governance. And so, you know, part of the way I say that it's like, you know, who does what when? That's what a lot of people want to know with design systems. Um, typically, how design system teams work, there's a couple of different models for this. In general, there's usually a bunch of product teams that are cross-disciplinary that are working on products or features of a company, you know, of, of certain products. And then there's usually a central design system team that works in a number of different ways that either serves those product teams, works in collaboration with them, is made up of maybe a federation of people that cycle in and out. So there's different models around that. One of the, the biggest pitfalls that I see around governance is that people are in the wrong seats. You know, so it's harder. It's harder for it's like it's like playing in a band where the guitar player is playing the drums. And it's like, I mean, wouldn't it be a little bit better if the guitar player was actually playing the guitar in this one? Like we might make better music this way. Like it would be interesting the other way, but seems like there's probably an easier way to do it. And and so I find that to be true in design systems a lot uh, is that I think that that organizations think that the design system team's job is to create a bunch of components and then the product team's job is to use those components. And, and that's what will make it consistent and efficient and all that stuff. That's backwards. Uh, and that's part of, that's a lot of what I write about in the book. That's to me is like one of the biggest things that people get wrong is it, sh it should go the other way around. The product team's job is to actually create components. And then the design system team's job is to take their components out of the products that they make and then re touch them up abstract them, extract them for scale. Mm -hmm. Because the product team's job is not to work at scale. 
it's the design system team's job because they're not because they're not the ones creating components. They have the time, the availability, the interest, and the skills to to look at it and say, we know how to systematize this thing that you made for this one instance over here. We know how to systematize it in a way that six other teams can use that next month. Well, it's um, it's like so, you you've got like in, in an enterprise, you you have multiple products, not multiple designs, right? Or you right. shouldn't have multiple exactly. designs. Yeah, that makes right. total sense. And but that's how teams work, though, is they they treat it like multiple like different designs because they're so siloed. Like one, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, and that's how you end up with all this digital, you know, design debt and technical debt is because something that's happened over here in the org has no no effect or impact on something that's happening over here on the org. So there's just a lot of duplication by accident. You know, and so the design system team's job is to to look across the whole org and say, you know what, there's something's happening over there. I think you all should know about this thing and connect those because that's what a system is. It's just connecting things together, and that's what the team's job is. Well, so that whole I think you should know about this seems really critical. Like the the design systems team, in a way, needs to feed back to the product people and say, hey, maybe before you start thinking about this new functionality, you see if we've already got it. And uh, I, now I know you have a bunch of different models for governance that you cover in the book that folks like Nathan Curtis and Gina have come up with. Is, is that really speaking to like just different ways that kind of back and forth that input output between design and, and product should be working? And are you yeah. fairly agnostic about them or? Um, I think it is a very dependent thing on the organization's culture. So a lot of the way that I think about design systems is that you want to follow the trails that have already worked. Mm -hmm. If your organization has, for example, an open source culture, well, that's a good model to follow for how your design system can be successful. Follow that model. Um, there are things that IT will just say no to. There are things that legal will just say no to. So, and, and a lot of those, those two examples in particular, what they look for generally is precedent. You know, they go, have we done this before? If we've done it before, then we could probably do it again. If this is the first time that we've done something, uh, it's too risky for us, right? Both of those groups, generally legal, compliance, IT, are usually like, if we're doing it for the first time, we need to look into this. Mm -hmm. What I recommend to teams when when they're paving the design system path is like, just follow the pathways that have already been paved. You know, like, like go down those paths because it's going to be an easier path. And so I very much resonate with those models that uh, Nathan Curtis and Gina Ann have, have talked about in creating either federated models of contribution and of participation or cyclical models. Um, I think that the open source model is a really good model as well. You know, if you look at a company like WordPress, it has a lot of different factions. There are people that work there full time, that get paid to work on WordPress. There are people who don't work there full time that also work on WordPress full time with their jobs funding that there are people who are consumers of it that will never contribute back to the Word, WordPress code base. There's lots of different factions that are involved in that entire ecosystem. And so an organization needs to find an ecosystem that, again, will be sustainable for them. And it's not always the same model. Some design system teams are made up purely of volunteers. Some design system teams are fully funded all th for the next three years. You know, those are very different cultures. And so I think that if for a design system to take, it has to work with the culture. So, so you, you think that those different models are really more a function of culture and not maturity? Absolutely. Yes. I think I've seen the different models across different levels of maturity work fine. Um, so I think it's less linear in terms of how it lines up with design maturity or design system maturity um, than it does. Like, what is the what can the culture tolerate or not? Now, um, one last question, you know, so you've been doing this for a, a long time. Um, 
what would you say? I'm really interested to 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 get a sense of like how people who are are decision makers in who, who are usually like the most senior people who even are aware of design systems in an enterprise how they think about design systems how has that evolved in the last 5 or 10 years and how would you say thinking about design systems has evolved for ICs in the last 5 or 10 years and have they oh, been uh, keeping up with each other yeah thank you for this question um I, what is equally interesting to me is how they haven't evolved. So I'll, I'll touch on both of those things. Um, they have evolved in terms of when I first started working on design systems, um, a lot of teams that I would work with, the, the need generally came from the ICs, you know, the individual contributors, the designers and the engineers on the ground, working on the products, you know, in Figma, in Sketch, in React, in Angular, writing the code. Um, and a lot of what they would bring me and my teams in for is like, can you help us convince the higher ups that we need this here, right? So we would come in and help pitch and and you know bring in our ROI slides and all that kind of stuff. Um, nowadays, almost every executive I meet with is like, yeah, I've heard of a design system. I understand its benefits, right? So that has changed. That has evolved a lot. Like I think the the industry has has done a good job of education, as you mentioned before. There's a lot more podcasts and conferences and books and materials and all sorts of stuff. People talking about design systems and evangelizing their their benefit. What hasn't changed is that design systems squarely sit, <laughs> from what I've seen, at a number three priority, never higher. Hmm. So it's always there's always two at least two things that are more important to do on the company's roadmap than design systems, and that's always the hurdle. The hurdle is like the you know the designers and engineers that bring me in and say like can can you convince our leadership that this should be number one priority? No, nope, because I think that they're making you know the the leadership is generally making the right decision. They are prioritizing the products and features that bring their customers value. I think that's a good call for an organization to do. So the the trick and the challenge is. How do we essentially get a design system as a byproduct of doing that work, mm. as opposed to to raising it in priority and deprioritizing product work that actually makes our company money or gets us customers or, or anything like that? Is we have to do those things together, and that's really the crux of the book. You know, design that scales is like we're not trying to co-op that prior that number one priority spot. We're trying to say, yeah, yeah, we should keep working on features, but if we work on features, can we get a design system out of that? You know, and that is the thing that if you can do that, then it's at no risk to any stakeholder. Nobody gets deprioritized. Nothing gets, you know, nothing gets moved around in that way. We're still helping our customers, which is our number one priority. And then we get this tool, this amazing tool as a benefit. Now, of course, easier said than done, which is why I wrote a book about it. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, actually, before we get away from evolution... Uh, over the last few years, I, I do want to acknowledge that you've gone through some in your work. Uh, you were doing Super Friendly for a number of years. A lot of people knew yes. your work at doing design systems consulting. And now you've uh, stepped away from that and you're doing uh, the Design Systems University. You want to talk about that for a moment? Totally. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, that has evolved as the industry has evolved. So one thing that I learned in running an agency and selling design system consulting and services to organizations is that the work that we did, although good, and I think, you know, at the at the best of the industry, you know, among the best, um, sometimes they just didn't take root. 
And one of the things that I learned from that was like, it was because it's trying to be transplanted from the outside. We, you know, my team would build the design system and design the design system and we would collaborate, we would co-create. And then we would try to transplant it from our environment into theirs. And we would train and we would, we would uh, do workshops and we would do town halls and we would do all this stuff, but it was still a foreign object. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was, and I, I switched the model of my agency, you know, for the last few years of it was that the more I can educate the in-house team about how to do this on their own, how to grow it from the inside, the more it just took root as a sustainable practice. And so the next evolution of that was like, I think I'm done doing agency work because I don't think that's the right thing to sell to people. I think that what I should sell them is actually the ability to educate them on how to do it on their own. Because if the goal is sustainable design system practices, I just didn't have good success doing that from the outside as much as I have like, let me just work with your team to grow it from the inside. It's your thing. I, we're not making it and then giving it to you. It's not a gift. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not a deliverable at that point. It, it's yours. And I can give you some support in how to do that. Um, and so, you know, that my journey has kind of led me to, I think the the education route when it comes to design systems is much more fruitful than, you know, we pay us for a deliverable and then good luck taking it over and we'll see you in six months. Well, speaking of gifts and speaking of education, uh, I think you have a gift for our listeners to to wrap up the podcast. What do you got for us? Yes. And along the same lines, uh, my friend Ritish Gupta um, has created the Useful School. Um, and it's such a wonderful initiative. Um, it's usefulschool.com. And it's essentially practical classes for people of color. Um, what is so awesome about it is it's a pay what you wish model. So Ritish has a really great heart for wanting more and more people to get into design and engineering and like these really great fields that we all work in. Um, and not a lot of people can afford that all the time, especially the people that, that get counted out are people who are generally marginalized in other areas of life, uh, people of color, women, trans folk, you know, like all sorts of people who generally don't get that opportunity. So Ratish has been awesome in, in just opening up that opportunity. He's got a ton of classes about, you know, product design, uh, branding. Um, he's expanded, I think, this year to things like financial wellness and hmm. decolonizing design and things like that, that really round out a design education, things that I wish I'd, I had done and, and gotten in design school that I had to learn, you know, the hard way. Um, and so, you know, I, I would love everyone, as many people as possible, to support what Ratish is doing with, with Useful School. You can make financial contributions. You can tweet about it and share it, you know, with folks. You can recommend people to it. Um, I think it's a wonderful initiative. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guest speaker in a bunch of his classes. He has a, a bunch of other though, uh, those two. And I think it's just a great thing that he's doing. Sounds like he's given a lot. And uh, so are you. And thank you for giving so much of your knowledge away uh, over the last few years. And, of course in this new book, Design That Scales, Creating a Sustainable Design System Practice. Dan, fantastic talking with you. Thanks for joining us today in the Rosenfeld Review. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.